0: So I think people need to understand what willpower is and what motivation is first, because I think sometimes they've got kind of a skewed view on it. You'll often hear people say, oh yeah, I couldn't stick with the program because I didn't have the willpower. And it's most probably not that you didn't have the willpower, it was just that the program never fitted you and there was never any true belief underlying that you could do it in the first place. You were doing it because society said you should or your coach said you should but in terms of did you believe you could do it Doubt you did if we were really to sit down and have a conversation about it how much did you really believe you could do that program
1: hey everyone this is dr josh williamson and you're listening to episode four of the complete performance podcast more than ever people are struggling with poor energy suboptimal health and are wanting to perform at their best for everything they want to achieve in their life today's episode i have the absolute pleasure of chatting with dr gary mendoza gary's background is in personal training moving on to training trainers and developing a successful nutrition and weight management course this course formed the basis of his doctoral research earning a phd in nutrition specializing in a multi-dimensional treatment for overweight and obese meals A big part of this research looked at the psychology of change. Gary has undertaken further training in motivational interviewing. Gary's other expertise is sports nutrition. He is now a lecturer across a number of different universities across the world, focusing on behaviour change, nutrition, sport and exercise science and others. He is also director of Stages of Change which delivers behavior change workshops and advanced behavioral change courses. This was an absolutely fantastic conversation and I hope you get a lot of value for it. So please help me in welcoming this week's guest, Dr. Gary Mendoza. Hey Gary, how's it going? How are you? Good thanks, thanks for inviting me on. No problem at all it's you know it's been a while I think I've had the pleasure of meeting you now five or six times between your courses and that but unfortunately we haven't actually had the pleasure to meet in person (laughs) (laughs) which is always a a strange one but I guess one of the reasons why I, I wanted to get you on is because you have this really unique ability or I think it's really unique ability like we were just chatting offline there that you have this knowledge that's really vast and deep, complex issues with regards to behavior change, but you wouldn't think that to talk to you. And (laughs) I mean, that is the biggest compliment (laughs) because the way you speak is very much just like you're talking to one of your mates. It's not academic. It's not, you know, up here theoretical. It's, well, how can I actually help you? I think I took a lot of that away from my own communication style with, you know, you come out with a master's or PhD or degree. People don't care if you have that. They want to know, can you help? And that's something that's it's always really stuck with me from even your very initial course on motivational interviewing that i done with you. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, it's, I just think your your ability to do that is is great. I
0: think you could just – I think it's true of all coaches, really. You've just got to be coming from the right place in terms of it's not about me. It's about the student and what do they learn, what can they use, what's the best way to put it across. And I know from my days as a student, you sit in lectures sometimes and think, the hell are they going on about here? And then somebody explains it differently to you, and you're like, well, why didn't they say that in the first place? Yeah. yeah. So I had this with a couple of lads when, I, funnily enough, we were just talking there about the Krebs cycle, and (laughs) the professor we had in biochemistry, he described the Krebs cycle. But you know normally when you describe it, it's always clockwise. Yeah. Yeah. for whatever reason he described it anti-clockwise mm-hmm. and it was majorly confusing because every textbook yeah described it the other way around and quite a few of the guys on our course were like i don't get this and so i spent a couple of hours with them explaining it the right way around and they're like well i get that now <laughs> <And> so, <laughs> so yeah i i think it's really important that people are not only do they understand it, but they feel that they can ask questions if they don't understand it. Cause I think sometimes it's a bit intimidating when you've got somebody that stands out the front and spills information at you. And sometimes people just sit there going, Oh, I'm going to look stupid if I ask a question here. Yeah. But I always, I'm always at pains to stress. There's no such thing as a stupid question.
1: <laughs> yeah. I always heard that if you keep asking stupid questions, you run out of stupid questions at some stage. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Um, But your initial research was all in behavior change. And if I've got this correct and can sum it up, it was generally that if we try and get people to do some sort of weight loss, that it may not work most of the time, but we can improve that result by assessing if they're actually ready to make that change. Would that be correct? Yeah, my pitch is in men's weight management. Mm. And the
0: initial idea was that I would work with personal trainers. So it was very practical. It was applied. Um, and part of that was assessing whether somebody was actually ready to change. And that was kind of the initial pilot study. Yeah. That was quite a surprise finding that we I found that quite a lot of people were taking on trainers.
1: Yeah. But if
0: you assess their psychology, they weren't really ready to change. And that's almost contradictory because you kind of think, surely you wouldn't sign up with the trainer unless you were ready to change. And And I think what happens is people go along to professionals, whether we're talking about trainers, coaches, dietitians, whatever. I think they go along sometimes with the attitude that, oh, well, you're the professional. You'll be able to kind of help me make the change. You'll have all the answers.
1: Yeah.
0: And it comes as a bit of a shock when they find out that, well, actually the answers that professional's got aren't the answers I want. Mm.
1: Yeah. No, I think that's, it's a strange one. It's again, it's, you know, it's one of the ones that when you explained your research the first time that we met, I was like, "That's quite an interesting take." Because as professionals, people approach us for a certain reason, and whether that's a referral from maybe a GP, or whether that's themselves actually reaching out and saying, "Here, I need some help with my weight loss," that we quickly find out that maybe that's not what they actually want when it comes down to the nitty gritty, trying to do make that change. Yeah, I mean they may be saying
0: one thing cuz kind of society dictates that that will be the right thing to say, you know, I'm not happy with my weight and blah blah. But actually do they what do they really want? Are they just generally unhappy? Is there something else going on? It's way more complex than I'll oh, just lose a bit of weight and and normally there's a hell of a lot going on in the background so discovering that and understanding that is really important for any coach or any professional, really, because yeah. at the end of the day, it's going to come down to lifestyle factors, whether we're talking about overweight, obese people, or whether even we're talking about elite athletes. yeah, If they've got to improve their nutrition to improve their performance, that impacts their lifestyle. They have to change the way they're living. And so understanding what that lifestyle is and what impacts on it is really important. You can't just go give like you a diet sheet follow that job done yeah
1: it's it's one of those ones that i always say when doing talks or lectures that the actual process sounds simple but life makes it very very difficult because of all those different factors yeah
0: yeah i mean it's like people go oh well, weight management is just calories in calories out and it's yeah. like god if only it was that simple
1: <laughs> yeah but you touched on a a point there that it's something that I've been sort of exploring recently that whatever reason like people come to us, whether it is a referral or whether they want to lose weight, or even that they do start the behavior change and maybe halfway through it, they realize that this isn't coming from what I, I want. They might think that they want to lose weight or even if it's alcohol consumption or exercise, it's maybe some sort of societal standard and it conflicts with their own internal values about what they feel is important. Yeah. Can you speak to that a little bit? Yeah, I mean, finding out what somebody's true
0: values and beliefs are it, is really important because when we look at if you look at something as simple as goal setting, yeah. and new year's New Year's resolutions are a, a good example of this.
1: Yeah.
0: It's like people make new years resolutions, and at the point that they make that resolution. They're committed to it. And if you would ask them, you know, how much could you do this? Like, oh, 10 out of 10, I'm going to get fit this year, stop smoking, lose weight, whatever it might be. Yeah. But if we were to measure their actual belief about whether they could do it, it might be around four or five out of 10. Yeah. And what we know is commitment always sinks back to what true belief is. And so they might start out super confident, But ultimately everything says that's going to sink back to four or five because that's what they truly believe. Mm -hmm. And so finding out what that underlying belief and value is, is really important because that is changeable. yeah. Providing the client themselves realizes that's what it is.
1: Yeah. Yeah. I think it's being, I guess, honest with ourselves to a certain extent about do we actually want to change and, and how important is it and, where where does our confidence lie in that? And then is it that person's own commitment to that, that they have to change from a three out of 10 to a five out of 10 or six out of 10? Or is that something they can do themselves or does that happen over time? I think that happens over time. and, And that's where any weight management, any
0: fitness program, whatever, must be about education. Yeah, Because the individual has to A, understand consequences of the changes and how they might come about and and what the long-term value of that will be and through education comes kind of competence and if you've got competence you, you that builds motivation as well yeah. and so it's a slow process it's no good just telling people what to do in the misguided belief that oh they'll keep doing it because yeah. that's kind of similar to the commitment thing it's like yeah they'll start doing it at the start of your program yeah but as I often kind of say to clients, it's like somewhere along the line, this is going to derail because life is just <laughs> going to get in the way. And, and at that point, if this isn't a true commitment and a true belief, that's it. That's end of program. You're going to just drop out. Yeah. But I'm a I'm a one of my mantras with new clients is it's your lifestyle that got you into this position, whether it be unfit, overweight, whatever it might be. And so the thing that has to change is your lifestyle. And if you can't buy into that and by buying, I mean, see it as a long-term permanent change yeah. as opposed to, Oh, I'll do the six week program or the 12 week program, whatever it is until you can buy into the fact that the changes I make are going to be permanent and I will have to do them for the rest of my life. Then actually you're kind of wasting your time because mm-hmm. If you don't do that you're just going to continually go on this yo-yo diet weight whatever because yeah. that's the nature of the beast that's really what yo-yo dieting is it's kind of getting a bit of confidence and thinking i'll do it and you do it for six weeks eight weeks then life gets in the way you put all the weight back on and then another event happens in your life so you think oh i'll go on a diet and away we go again mm. And so kind of looking back at your past history in terms of your lifestyle, weight and whatever is quite important.
1: Yeah.
0: Because if you can accept that, well, I've got to do something different because I keep doing it this way and that ain't working, then that's kind of half the battle, but it's actually quite a hard thing to do because your lifestyle is made up of so many things, you know, it's like
1: yeah.
0: your income, your job, your family, your social circle, and and they're all complex in their own right.
1: Yeah. No, it's it is even like times like now when when cost of living's going up, you're telling people that you have to eat certain foods, and that just might not be be feasible. And I think that's now that we have a better understanding of even if we take the multidimensional model of obesity, that it's it's not just calories in, calories out. That might be the underlying factor, but there's a lot of socioeconomic factors that tie into that. Yeah, and that's not to you know alleviate responsibility because we can still make change, but It can't be in like a six week or 12 week program, as you say. No, I mean, they're definitely, there's a strong tie to
0: socioeconomic status. When I repeated the research in New Zealand, I did a lot of work with the Maori and South Pacific Islanders.
1: Mm.
0: Now, both those groups, both those cultures tend to be at the lower income scale within the New Zealand population. Just kind of the nature of the beast. You can argue whether that's right or wrong, but it's a fact. And that's where the highest levels of obesity were. So there definitely is a tie with economic status. Mm. So any advice you're giving clients has to fit what their kind of cost of living, their income is. You know, It's all very well saying to people, oh, you've got to eat lots of fruit and veg and lean meat and blah, blah, blah. If they can't afford that, then, well, that's just not realistic
1: advice. Yeah. It's all about meeting the client where they're at. Yeah. yeah. I'm, a, I'm a big believer
0: in, like you say, finding where they're at. And now let's make small changes as we go along. Yeah. Some of those will stick. And so that you, you think, right, good, we'll stay with them. But others, they won't. They'll try them and they'll come back a week, two weeks later going, go, well, I did try that, but this happened and that happened and I couldn't do it. Yeah. Well, if they can't do it when they're working with you, they're definitely not going to do it when you're not there. So we'll bin them then. Let's find something else. And And it could be that with a client, you're not going to get them to the ideal weight or the perfect level of fitness. But if you improve their fitness and if you help them lose a few pounds, yeah that's good. That's improved their health. So you've got to see that as a win.
1: Yeah. It's, it's funny that you say that because over the last three, four five years, I've really changed the way that I approach my coaching because it's easy to get tied into that 12 week program and you're just churning out before and afters, but the person doesn't learn anything They go back to their usual lifestyle. And then it's repeat, rinse and repeat. But for me now, one of the things that I said to a lot of clients is that people often underestimate or overestimate what they can do in that 12-week period, but underestimate what they can do long-term. Yeah. And for me as a coach, I don't need you to lose two or three stone. I need to educate you and give you the, the tools and the confidence that you don't need me after, any, after the 12 weeks, that you can make that change stick long-term. Yeah, I mean...
0: If you look at all the research in weight management, it shows that structured programs are the most successful Mm. and that those successful structured programs have got a huge education element. And so like, I totally agree with you. The goal of that 12 week program actually isn't to lose huge amounts of weight or whatever. It's just to educate the client. So as they now start to make better choices, and then maybe a year down the line, they might have lost a stone or whatever, but at least they've lost it through whatever technique that's going to fit their lifestyle. And they're more likely to keep it off. Yeah. And it's a challenge because as a coach, as you know, you're competing against everybody else that's going, oh, well I can kind of get you to lose a stone in six weeks or yeah. two stone in 12 weeks or whatever. And so you've got to compete against that, and that's quite hard because the general public are just going, well, "That's what I want, I want to lose two stone and it's quite hard for you to get the message across that you might think you want that, but actually what you need is this, and then ultimately that will get you to that point, but it'll be further down the line and so it's it from a marketing perspective, it's a real challenge
1: <laughs> yeah it's not it's not sexy to sell but I'm so glad that you said that because there's always a statistic that's thrown around that who knows what it is because everyone changes it that between 80 to 95% of diets fail and people regain that weight within 2 years but we see that massively drop when education is added into some form of structured program.
0: Yeah. I I always Mary Barassi who was my one of my PhD supervisors. I always remember on my undergraduate and we were talking about nutrition and she, obviously i was coming from a personal training background and she said the problem with nutrition is it's not sexy
1: yeah
0: i said what do you mean she goes well telling somebody that they should eat more fruit and veg lean meats maybe drink a bit less caffeine a little bit less alcohol yeah. there's no magic trick there there's no magic outcome." he says but what everybody sells is the quick fix the yeah. The fat burner, the whatever she said. So if you're trying to sell solid, healthy nutrition, it's not sexy. There's no way you can kind of dress that up to make it look like it's some magic formula. Yeah. And yeah. and I kind of didn't get it at the time, but I do now. It's like
1: you you do realise that, God, yeah, it's, it's a diff, It's a hard sell almost. Yeah, it was one of the things that again I learned just with a little bit more maturity that when I first came out into the industry. I was slating off things like Weight Watchers and Slimming World and all these different programs. And yes, they have their pros and cons, but they worked with people, you know, they didn't do any of these high carb, low carb, high fat, low fat things they were very much just about generally portion control through some sort of marketable system. And the more I thought about that, it's it's the simple things that work long term, but that that's difficult to sell, it's difficult to market, and that's why we need to slap a name on it and Give it, lose a stone in two weeks, and people then are like, like giving that. Yeah, it, it, it's a hard sell. It definitely is. Yeah. One of the things that I think is interesting that, you know, when we're talking about New Year's resolutions or even any sort of behavior change, you know, it could be reducing alcohol consumption, it could be any other sort of addictions. And that one of the things I think that a lot of people focus on is the willpower to do something, or I need to have the motivation to do it. What do you think some of the like, pros and cons of relying on willpower and motivation to, to change your behavior? Well, I, 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 first off, I think most, I say most, a lot of
0: trainers don't understand willpower or motivation.
1: Yeah.
0: I mean, willpower is a finite resource. So if you look at the research around it, and so if you spread yourself too thin, then it's like if you've only got this block, Let's yeah. say 100% willpower looks like that, but you're trying to apply willpower to 10 different things. That means you've only got 10% of your willpower for each task,
1: Yeah,
0: which means that's going to run out pretty quick. Whereas if you were to just apply five items, and say, "You now you've got 20% of your willpower for each, well, then it might last a bit longer. So yeah. understanding that you can spread yourself too thin, and then there's this um, the glucose hypothesis around willpower, which is that your brain's an obligate user of glucose and willpower is from somewhere within the brain anyway. And so glucose availability kind of dictates how strong your willpower is. So if you're stressed, that's going to be burning glucose because of your fight flight mechanism. And then if you're kind of busy physical job, that's burning glucose as well. And then if you've got poor sleep patterns, then that's most probably not resupplying the glucose. And so now your willpower is, is actually not very good. And now when you try and apply that to the new fitness program or the new diet program, or whatever, it runs out real quick. So you've got to kind of think about that first. Yeah. And then motivation, well, there's different types. If you look at um, self-determination theory, Ryan and Desai, they talk a lot about motivation, but you can kind of look at motivation as being on a scale at one end, you've got extrinsic motivation. So that's the trainer standing over you going 10 more press ups, get a grip, one more lap around the track, whatever. And if you don't finish this, you're not getting this. So that's extrinsic motivation. That's not very effective. It is motivation, but it's not effective. Yeah. And then at the other end of the scale, you've got intrinsic motivation. And that's what we should be trying to build as coaches.
1: Yeah.
0: Because intrinsic motivation is built through competency, self-efficacy, these type of things. And so you're finding your reasons to do it for yourself. As it says, it's intrinsic. It's coming from within.
1: Yeah.
0: So your role as a coach is actually not to provide motivation it's actually to help the client find their own motivation, and that's very different to I yeah. oh, will just do it because I said, or well, just follow the plan, it will work. That's extrinsic motivation. It'll work short term, but not long term. so I, I think people need to understand what willpower is and what motivation is first, because I think sometimes that they, they've got kind of a skewed view on it. You'll often hear people say, oh, yeah, I couldn't stick with the program because I didn't have the willpower. And it's most probably not that you didn't have the willpower. It was just that the program never fitted you and there was never any true belief underlying that you could do it in the first place. You were doing it because society said you should or your coach said you should. But in terms of did you believe you could do it, doubt you did. If we were really to sit down and have a conversation about it, yeah. How much did you really believe you could do that program?
1: Yeah. No, I, I agree with everything you said there, and there's a lot, to, a lot we could delve into. Uh, I guess picking up on maybe two points, what you said about the glucose hypothesis is something I was reading maybe literally a week ago by mm-hmm. Diana, Diana Hill and Debbie Sorensen about they were comparing, I think it was medical students doing an exam and they give half them sweets during the exam and the other half not and just the stress and the willpower seemed to um, be less in the students that were having the, the sweets because of the glucose you know yeah. Interesting one well, I totally get that because
0: when I was my undergrad my, I had a routine for exams and that was always <laughs> half a bar of dark chocolate and can of coca-cola so there was like a ton of sugar and a ton of caffeine so i'd go into an exam buzzing i mean i i used to do all the revision it's funny other guys on the course would say to me do you not get nervous for exams i'm like no why is that i said because i really prepared well for exams and i used to go into an exam with an attitude of if i don't get at least 80 percent on this i'm going to be pissed with myself yeah so to me it wasn't a case of pass or fail it was a case of You either do really well on this, or you've let yourself down. So it was never a case of nerves, but but yeah, the glucose theory definitely worked. There might have been a degree of placebo with that, you know. Well, I've had my chocolate, I've had my coke, I'm good to go. But yeah it it worked. (laughs) Yeah,
1: I think the other thing about Willpower is, I don't. A lot of people may may not know about this, but in the research, it's sort of described as that "what the hell" effect. That you know, you're trying so hard to do something, but then. When you do indulge, it's like you feel that shame, you feel that guilt, and you want some form of comfort, and you, and you want it fast, and you usually go to the thing that you've indulged in, and then that leads to a bigger relapse and shame and guilt and loss of control and all that stuff.
0: What the hell effect is really interesting. I mean, and that kind of ties in with cognitive behavioral therapy yeah. in that what happens, and it's actually documented in the literature. It's called the what the hell effect. Yeah. But, you know, as you rightly say, people do something... And then, I don't know, something happens in life, the kids play up, the car won't start, whatever it might be. And you think, oh, what the hell? I'm going to have some pizza tonight because I can't be bothered to kind of cook a meal or whatever. And then I'll only have two bits of the pizza. And then, so you have two pieces of pizza and then you think, oh, what the hell? I might as well finish it. (laughs) And then similarly, you've got a glass of wine. So I'm just going to have the one glass of wine. But then you have the one glass of wine. You think, oh, what the hell? I might as well finish the bottle. And so... And then you beat yourself up over that. And so the guilt from that, then the next day you think, well, I've already screwed my diet up and my fitness. I'll I'll just, I'll just have a a week off and I'll start again on Monday. And of course, Monday never comes around. You've basically (laughs) fallen right out of the program. So you kind of need to learn to manage that. And research that's been done into that shows that the best way to manage it is to not feel guilty about the odd relapse because it is going to happen. Now in cognitive behavioral therapy, we call it catastrophizing. Yeah. So it's looking at an event that's gone wrong, but then blowing it out of proportion. And it's like, really, two bits of pizza, you know, it's not the end of the world. it happens. We get you're gonna have the odd day off. I always used to, when I taught the personal trainers on my research, I used to teach them the chocolate, the chocolate cake calculation. <laughs> and they'd look at me daft. I go, Well, what you say to people is. They had, they're had. they on their diet and they're keeping fit and they're eating really well. And then they decide they're going to have a piece of chocolate cake. And when they've had the chocolate cake, they go, oh, bugger, I've wrecked my diet. I might as well finish it off and have some more chocolate. <laughs> and I say, what you do, to them? you say to them, okay, how many calories in that piece of chocolate cake that you had? And let's just say for the sake of argument, it was 500 calories because it was a decent bit of chocolate fudge cake. <laughs> And i say, now work that out as a percentage of your daily allowance. And so if we're kind of sticking with round numbers and it was a female, 2000 calories, so it's 25% of your calories. Okay. That is quite a big chunk for one day. I say now work out how many calories you're allowed in a week based on that. And they obviously multiply it by seven. Mm -hmm. And I say now work out the percentage from that. And obviously it shrinks dramatically. Now do it for a month how many calories am i allowed in a month and what proportion is that chocolate and now do it for a year and of course by the time you do it for a year it's like point naught naught whatever and i said so realistically that one bit of chocolate cake it's not the end of the world i said so just accept that and enjoy it and then crack on it's that i love i love the pie chart method on on um ingredients you know where they put oh, yeah. the pie chart where they have the kind of green for the carbohydrate and the red for the fat yeah. and i always used to say to students that if you're going to go and buy chocolate cake in sainsbury's make sure you one that you pick the one that's pretty much all red because that will taste <laughs> best yeah and, and just enjoy it for what it is because i think you know life's too short and the odd bit of chocolate cake not the end of the world so yeah, yeah but understanding the what the hell effect before you even start is really important because as humans, it's the way we learn. You learn through failure and rather than call it failure, call it feedback. So if you accept that, Oh, it's not a failure. It's just, I'm going to learn from this and just say to yourself, sit down at the end of the day and go, what could I have done different or what could I have done better that will stop that happening in the future? And as long as you take away one lesson from that happy days, that's really valuable because now you've got another tool in your toolbox that helps you manage your lifestyle a bit better. So I, I think it's just putting a realistic perspective on things. And that's the role of the coach is to help the client learn how to get that kind of new perspective on what they're doing.
1: Yeah, no, I definitely want to come back to the role of failure because I think it's well, it's an integral part of just the behavioral change process. But the other thing I think people, you know, just as you said, because that is a learning experience that we should be taking curiosity to look at, well, why did that happen? People forget that when you do try and spread yourself too thin with your willpower, that there does tend to be a spillover effect that we see in the research as well, that if you try and put maybe all your effort in to stop smoking, well, then you might actually increase the amount of the calories you consume because you're trying to put something else in. Yeah. And that's an important thing to understand as well, I think. Yeah, I mean you offset. I mean there's no two ways about it. And
0: so I I think it is a case of prioritize what you're going to do rather than try and do it all in one go. And don't aim for perfection either, aim for improvement.
1: Yeah.
0: Perfection will come later,
1: hopefully. Hopefully. But-
0: yeah, but because you can't you cannot predict the future. I mean, I think this is a mistake people often make.
1: Yeah.
0: It's like, oh, well, in six weeks' time I'll be able to do this, or twelve weeks' time I'll be able to do that. I'm sure every athlete in the world sets out their program like that, with oh, right, well, my runtime will come down by this much by then. And if I do that. but stuff gets in the way. You get a pick up a virus, you kind of something happens. You can't train for a week. Yeah. well suddenly then well that program's not off track it's just gone slightly a different way so aim for improvement and then ultimately you'll get to perfection or what you might because what you classify as perfection now yeah when you actually get there you might think actually i want more than this mm. i mean i've seen this with clients before where they've they've come to me and the initial goal has been i want to lose a couple of stone or maybe want to be able to do a 10k run Yeah. And then when they're able to do that, suddenly it becomes well, I can do that easy. I want to do a marathon there. Yeah. But if we have started out with, all oh, right, I'm going to do a marathon one day. No way would they have, because it's like, that's too far in the distance. Yeah. So I think just seeing things as baby steps along the route and ultimately you'll get to wherever you want to go, but don't expect it to happen overnight. And don't worry when things go off track a bit.
1: Yeah no i'm I'm glad you said that because it will it's the individual's perceived perfection and you know i always ask them is not what's your goal but what's your definition of success because then they'll give you something that's a little bit more tangible and oh i just want to lose weight and one of the things that i always say to them is you know perfection just by definition isn't is impossible to achieve yeah that's not to say we can't have high standards as you say like you set goals, you achieve them, and you set even further goals, and you go down that way. I think the downside is in when we start looking at how that impacts maybe towards all or nothing, thinking that if I don't achieve that, then I'm beating myself up, I'm a failure, it's affecting my self-worth, and that's maybe where a lot of people struggle because they almost put that all or nothing pressure on themselves. Yeah, and it,
0: it's unrealistic. And the weight thing's interesting because I'll, I'll often get clients and they'll say, oh, I need to lose two stone. Mm. And I'll say to them, not sure you can lose two stone, but we could maybe reduce your waist measurement by a couple of inches or something like that. Is that any good to you? And they're like, oh, God, yeah. Because yeah. <laughs> it's like what they really meant was they want to be comfortable in certain clothes or whatever or look a certain way. It was never about weight, yeah. but they always use weight as the indicator. And I think it's it's a lousy indicator, actually, because as you as you know, weight goes up and down yeah. But actually, body composition can be changing underneath that. In terms of body fats coming down, lean tissues increasing, whatever. And so, weight's a lousy indicator.
1: Yeah, but that's it's something that we've spoken about before in in one of your workshops. That you know, just that very simple exercise of the five why's. You know, I want to lose weight. Well, why do you want to lose weight? Oh, because I want to be more comfortable in my clothes. Oh, well, why do you want to be more comfortable in your clothes? And by the time you ask your five whys, you find out that it's they don't just want to lose weight. It's I want to feel more attractive, or I want to be more confident, or it's it's any of those things. It could be acceptance, and it's it's not really about the weight loss itself. No, I mean it's, it, it's finding what the real driving need is, as opposed to the kind of
0: surface need, because the weight is the surface need. Yeah. But it's well, what's underneath that? What where do you really want? It? And like you say, the Socratic questioning is is really useful because it really makes people think because if you ask anyone an initial question the answer you get will always come from the conscious brain because it's kind of sitting there parked and it's good to go but if i keep asking the question ultimately we run out of ideas in the conscious brain and we now have to start accessing subconscious and unconscious and it's your subconscious and unconscious that's running the show much as you might think everything I do, I do consciously and I know what I'm doing. No, you don't. Yeah. Most of what you do, you do subconsciously and you don't even think about it. And I mean, the example I use on the workshop is like sign your signature. And so people would go, Oh yeah, find a bit of paper, find a pen, sign my signature. Do you think about what had to happen for all that to work? Yeah. Picking up the paper, orientating it right, putting it on a, the right surface picking up a pen, holding it correctly, positioning your arm and shoulder. But you didn't sit there and think, oh, I've got to do all this. And I must remember for that muscle to extend and this one to contract. It's like, So yeah, most most of what we do, we do subconsciously. And it's true with our, basically our lifestyle. We run subconsciously and unconsciously. And so if we are trying to change a lifestyle, that's what we've got to get to. We've got to find out what that underlying program is And think about how do we reprogram that then so as it works differently?
1: Yeah, it's interesting because what I would say to to a lot of my clients is that you going over things in your head, you may have been taught that that's thinking, but we can't actually properly think unless we actually speak to something or we write something down. And Mm. I see see this all the time, you know, if you're lecturing and your students are doing presentations and it comes to the end, you have to ask questions. And no student wants to ask another student question. So you're always going, right, I'll ask the question. <laughs> yeah. Sometimes I'll ask a question that's, that literally they've read out on the screen. And it's like, they can't answer it. I'm like, you literally told me this two seconds ago. But now when you're being that question on it, you just don't know it. You haven't thought it through. You haven't spoke it. You haven't wrote it down. And what I find is that you know journaling, writing down things, talking with people is so much more better for people to actually understand where their thoughts are. And you can delve into that. You know, that consciousness a little bit more
0: it's funny i just did um a tutorial last night for students who were just starting on the nutritional biochemistry mm. and i said to them i said get a notebook mm. and start making notes on your lectures yeah i said even if it's just one sentence about something that's just been said because if you write it down it it's like ingrains it and and a mantra i live by is if it's not written down it never happened yeah <laughs> <laughs> And that comes from being in the forces. Yeah. So, But writing things down, and there was a study at Harvard that showed that when they compared students that made notes on a laptop compared to those that took written notes, the students that took written notes maintain, uh, retained the information better and were better able to recall it. Yeah. So there must be something about that physical use of a pen and paper yeah. that somewhere embeds it in your brain a bit better. So it's a it's a good habit to get into, and I think the journaling is really I never used to do it, and then I picked that what was it um five minute morning or something or other, but I forget what the book was called. But part of that was journaling, and it was and I thought, oh, it's a bit kind of hippy dippy or whatever, yeah. but I did it just a couple of sentences every morning, and I found it really quite powerful, especially when I look back like two or three months. I thought, oh my god. So, yeah, i'm I'm a big believer in kind of keeping written notes. And it's really useful for clients,
1: yeah,
0: because I think clients, when they look back over three, four, five weeks, yeah. even they will start to see, "Oh, I am changing the way I'm thinking. So that so much as you might not sit and see any kind of outward signal that your lifestyle is changing, inside it is. and and ultimately that will manifest itself physically and emotionally within you yeah. but it takes time you know it's like it's not a six week thing it's not a 12 week thing it's taking you know your average client 30 40 50 years old it's taken a long time to get to that point so to think that you're going to change it in four or five weeks is yeah. makes no sense whatsoever
1: yeah as you said someone's lifestyle's got them there and if that's five or ten fifteen twenty years that's a long time you to try and reverse and you're not doing that in six or 12 weeks, but I think it's really important what you said there. And it's something that, that I do myself that having some form of written words that a client has put down in black and white themselves, you start building up this bank of whether it's reflections or whether it's journal that they can now look over and be like, okay, well, maybe my weight stayed consistent, but there's all this emotional change or psychological change And I think people, people feel as if they have to change physically first before the other stuff comes, but we have to be aware that emotions and perceptions and thoughts impact our, our actions as well. So it's important to see that, well, there is progress here beyond the number on the scale. Yeah. And, and I, I agree with
0: you. I I think emotion, psychology and everything else precedes anything physical. Because without those changes, you don't see the physical manifestation of it. So yeah. the, the physical changes and the, the everyday lifestyle changes, you're going to see later down, down the track, as it were.
1: Yeah.
0: And to me, the biggest success in my research was that speaking to some of the trainers, and now we're talking 20, 30 years since I did that research, at least 20 years anyway. Mm. But some of the guys that took part in it to this day, you have maintained the weight loss.
1: Yeah.
0: So to me, that's the biggest success. The fact that not only did they educate them, and yes, during the program, they lost a few pounds and their waist measurement reduced because they were the outcome measures. Yeah. But more importantly, they've been able to sustain that. And to me, that's a far more, a far better outcome than anything
1: that was achieved in the 12 weeks of the program. And that, that long term result doesn't come without psychological change and emotional change at the same time no i mean that
0: that's the best measure of was this a lifestyle change or not because if you've put all the weight back on well then it wasn't a lifestyle change it was a temporary adjunct while you were doing the program yeah and and so to be able to say i helped that client get a bit fitter reduce their weight measurement whatever and they've been able to sustain it that is that's a real result
1: yeah i feel as if when it comes to us as healthcare professionals, no matter what that that is and what setting that's in, that there is a lot that we have to understand about psychology, the emotion, looking at that subconscious, conscious side of things. And you touched it on earlier about different types of motivation. Would you say that a lot of people come initially for behaviour change or what they perceive their goal to be from a place of external motivation? because maybe society tells them they have to do it, their doctor tells them they have to. And our role as healthcare professionals is to try and make that more intrinsically motivated.
0: Yeah, 100%. I mean, the the one group you can almost guarantee are coming with external motivation will be anyone that's been put on a GP referral program. Yeah. Because the GP has gone, your BMI is too high, you need to lose weight, mm-hmm. I'm going to refer you to the gym. It's like they can wash their hands of that person and get rid of them. Yeah. Whether that person wants to be at the gym is a whole nother question. And my guess is most don't. Yeah. And it's it's similar with a lot of illnesses, because obviously obesity is a multi-complex disease. Yeah. But things like diabetes, things like that, you know, you get told by your doctor, oh, you're pre-diabetic. And if you don't change something, then, you know, you'll, you'll end up with type 2 diabetes and all the complications that go with that. That's external. Whether that person... That person doesn't walk out of that surgery now and think, "Oh, I feel totally different now." Now I know I'm a pre-diabetic. I must change things because most people don't change. Yeah, it's like you see it with smoking behavior. You see it with people that have had heart attacks. So you would think that you know you're diagnosed with lung cancer and you're told that it's your smoking behavior that's made. Well, a lot of people don't stop smoking. Yeah, and somebody has a heart attack, but that doesn't necessarily guarantee that they'll take up activity, stroke, exercise, whatever, and maybe improve their diet and maybe try and lose weight. A lot of people don't. Yeah. And so that's all external. And it, and until such times as it starts to come from within and, and the thinking somewhere in there starts to become, this needs to change. And I'm the one that needs to change it until we can get to that point. They're, they're not likely to be successful in, in whatever change they're, they're wanting to make and this is what coaches have to understand it's no good as a coach you going you definitely need to lose weight because if if you don't in a few years time you won't be able to play with the kids that might well be true but that doesn't help the client at all because they maybe don't view it that way they don't see it as that's the issue so it and as you know from doing the workshop in motivational interviewing it's about helping the client find their own reasons for wanting yeah. to change. And that, when we find those, then that's intrinsic. That's intrinsic motivation. Once yeah. a client starts to hear their own reasons for wanting to change, they are more likely to make that change.
1: Yeah, yeah. And I guess that's where the art of coaching comes in, that it's not, here's a training plan, or here's a diet plan, or well, here's a anti-diabetic you know, or pre-diabetic exercise intervention. It's the role of a coach is to try and, I guess, address that ambivalence, the, the reasons for doing it, evoking reasons for change. And I, I think this is, it, it's a good argument for changing the way we, we
0: train coaches.
1: Mm. Yeah,
0: And and by coaches, I'm including dietitians, doctors, practice nurses, everything. All, we tend to train all of those professionals in terms of, I'm going to give you all the knowledge you need to work with whatever whether it be a dietitian, which would obviously be all the nutrition and clinical nutrition or yeah. if it was a doctor it would be all the disease processes or whatever so we give them all that expertise and then we kind of put them out into the big bad world with a misguided belief that well all i have to do is impart my knowledge yeah. and the clients will be fixed kind of thing and if only it was that easy to just give people the answers and they go away and fix it because i think what we've got to do is look at the history of obesity and for how many decades have we now advertised five a day and getting more active or whatever you could go out onto the high street and ask anyone what do you need to do to lose weight and get a bit fitter and they'd pretty much be able to tell you that it wouldn't be perfect but you get most of the things it would be kind of oh less takeaways reduce my alcohol walk a bit more so it's like well hang on then if you already know all that why don't you do it and that's the question nobody wants to answer it's like hmm that's because that's that's hard the government if you were to say to the government the way to cure obesity is to help people find their own reasons (laughs) they'd be like i don't know i can do that that's like I can't have an advertising campaign that will do that. And you're right, you won't.
1: Yeah.
0: And so we, the professionals we have got working in this field, so doctors, nurses, dieticians, personal trainers, they need to be better educated so as they can help people find their own reasons. And it's a big dilemma with obesity because, again, if you look at the research for successful weight management programs, the more successful programs – tend to have a lot more one-to-one input and weekly input. And doctors, nurses haven't got that time. If you went to a doctor's surgery and said how many of your patients are obese, and if you kind of look at national statistics, it would be kind of at least two-thirds, most probably.
1: Yeah.
0: It's like, and can you dedicate one one day a week? to each of the uh, sorry 15 20 minutes to each patient every week could you do that there's not enough hours in the day no and so we've got to think about well hang on who else can we bring into this arena yeah. to help with this and i think trainers and coaches are a good group but we need to make sure those trainers and coaches are properly trained
1: yeah. in behavior change yeah
0: and we don't do that at the moment
1: yeah i think like i totally agree and we could talk about this were ours, but it seems to be that again from universities from the education sector into now the working sector is that we teach people all the best knowledge and understand and we tick all those boxes that we need to within our, our learning schemes and then people go out into the world and they have that knowledge but i always tell people that you know if you even have a degree never mind a master's or phd if you do your three or four year degree you have pretty much all the information that you'll ever need to work in that profession. You don't need your master's or PhD. What we lack then is that ability to convey that and help people change their behaviours. And as you say, it's it's the education, or it's not the education, it's the medical sector as well. We just don't have the time. And that's where I think the role of behaviour change, whether it's psychological support, therapists, nutritionists and coaches who are trained in that, that things like community support groups, where they could have like group sessions and you could talk through things like that, that's going to be a a bigger change than sitting down with your GP for seven minutes because they're going to say, here's the the Eat Well plate, here's your five fruit and veg, and everyone knows what to do, but they struggle with actually changing the behaviours that have been there for five or ten years.
0: Yeah, I agree. I, I think small group, well, certainly for men, from my research, small groups work really well big yeah. groups don't women seem to work quite well in big groups so hence the success of things like slimming world weight watchers because it's very much that social interaction yeah but my research showed that men don't like big groups mm. but men will work quite well in groups of 3 or 4
1: yeah
0: so you can you could set up small group practices and that would and they actually they end up supporting each other so that that becomes almost like a self fulfilling prophecy because as they kind of get more confident, learn more skills, they actually start to support each other.
1: Yeah. I think with men there is still that stigma that by talking about, you know, weaknesses, limitations, being vulnerable, there's people don't want to do that. But I think when you get them into that setting and other people are sharing sure what they're struggling with, that you're finding a lot of men feel the same way. And they they almost get that confidence from talking and hearing other men's stories. And that's why I think the small groups work because you're kind of more likely to
0: open up a bit to two or three other guys than you would a group of 20 because of that fear of looking a bit weak or a bit foolish or whatever. But in a small group, that works. Because one of the things I got trainers to do with the guys that were in the research, I said, make sure they tell their work colleagues what they're doing yeah. in terms of i'm on this program i'm trying to get fit or i'm trying to lose a bit of weight and and i said point out to them that it's the nature of men unfortunately that they are liable to take the mick when you initially kind of broach the subject in terms of if i'm on a coffee break don't kind of try and tempt me with biscuits or whatever yeah. but what we found was although they kind of struggled with that initial broaching the subject once they had their work colleagues were really supportive. Yeah. So once you got over that initial hurdle, they're all like, "Well, fair play to you. If you're doing that, I'll I'll kind of help you out a bit or whatever." Yeah. So I mean, it actually worked in their favour, but it was just that initial. And it's true, you know, me, we traditionally men won't go to their GP unless they're basically <laughs> dying on their bed or whatever. You know, it, it's just like, well, I've got a bit of an ache. I ain't going to my GP with that. It's like I'll look foolish. Yeah, I we can't. We need to get past that a bit.
1: I'm I'm still guilty of that at times. <laughs> I'm uh, the same. But it's like, nah, I'll get over it. <laughs> yeah. One of the things that I guess just to finish one of the topics I, that I'm finding really interesting at the moment, Darren, you touched on it earlier, and it's almost. I'd love to hear your thoughts on this because it is part of the behavior change process. Obviously, we have these expectations that we're going to lose weight or you know whatever we're trying to change. But failure and mistakes and getting things wrong, that's gonna come up and it's inevitable. Like we have to go through that and we understand that we have to learn about it. But if we look at some of the research around and I understand that some of the research is around addictions and that, but we're always talking about relapse prevention. What's the role of, you know, failure and getting things wrong, that learning process, but also trying to prevent that relapse?
0: I don't think you can prevent a relapse. Mm. I think relapses are inevitable. Yeah. Because it's like anything, you know, when you learn to ride a bike,
1: yeah. you
0: don't jump on a bike and ride it first time unless you're very fortunate. Yeah. You kind of fall off a few times. But actually you need to fall off a few times. Yeah. So as your body then learns where your balance is and how to move your balance. And it's the same with anything.
1: Yeah.
0: We actually need the relapses. So as we kind of learn at a deeper level right, in the future, if this is going to work for me, I need to be able to manage that situation or this situation. So the key is, accept that relapse is actually part of the process and it's useful. Yeah. And we know this from smoking behavior because Protachar and Clementi with the stages of change model, they found that the average successful um, smoker who gave up, it took them at least five or six attempts So kind of five or six go rounds, if you like, before they were actually successful in permanently stopping smoking. And So there has to be something about each of those kind of relapses that they've learned from. Mm. And so we have to accept right from the outset that relapse is part of the process, but not view it as a negative and actually view it as a positive. And so this is why I always say to coaches, you've got to talk about this very first session because yeah. when your client initially comes to you they will be super confident because people always are they are actually suffering from what is known as barrier underestimation yeah and what that basically means is they've got all this they've got a high level of confidence but actually it's not based on any kind of fact yeah. it's just that for whatever reason they've decided they're going to do this and so they're super confident and when you say to them oh, you're bound to have a relapse at some point. They'll go, oh, no, no, it won't happen, not this time because I'm working with you and blah, blah. It's a bit like when I was a gym manager, people would sign up in January in the droves and you could pretty much guarantee that come the end of February, 50% of them would hardly be coming to the gym. Yeah. But you didn't say anything at the time because obviously you, you just want the membership, you want the money coming in. Yeah. But you knew full well that much as they will say to you, oh, yeah, I'll be coming in at least three to four times a week, and they might do that for a couple of weeks, over time that will slowly wear off because different things happen and so they'll they'll relapse to their old behavior. Now, if I'd have pointed out to them right at the start that this is going to happen and we need a way of managing it, much as they might have said, no, it won't, whatever. I said, well, okay, let's well, just... Take the scenario where we assume it will, even though you're saying it won't, Hmm. how will you manage it? Yeah. And get them to come up with kind of plan B, as it were. At least now when it happens, I can say to them, remember we talked about this when we first started? Yeah. And they kind of somewhere in their subconscious, it's sitting there and they go, Oh yeah, I do vaguely remember something about that. I said, So that's where we're at now. Yeah. So what is plan B? And then then they activate plan B and away we go again. But at least now we've got a way of moving forward. Whereas if I don't talk about it, when it happens and I say to them, oh, don't worry, relapse is part of the process. They'll just go, well, you're just saying that because you want to keep me in the program (laughs) because it doesn't sound genuine. Yeah. So I think this is one example where you should plan. I don't like the word failure, but plan for failure. And and now we're going to treat it as feedback.
1: Yeah. I do an exercise with my clients called plan for chaos, which is pretty much what you're talking about. Um, But I think sometimes even people who are aware of the behavior change model, sometimes, because you you typically see that linear model of, you know, going from contemplation right through and relapse at the end, and you always see an arrow going back. But the way that I sort of describe it as clients is like, you're almost feeling upwards, that spiral upwards or feeling forwards. And with each time you relapse, you learn something from it. Yeah the way that I describe pretty much how you describe it is the difference there is how we approach failure. Do we approach it being harsh on ourselves do, or do we approach it with a little bit more compassionate towards ourselves? Yeah. And that goes back to that what the hell effect, because that's what those researchers found.
0: If you don't feel guilty about it and if you're self-compassionate and if you accept that it's part of the process, you are far more likely to just get back on the horse, as it were, and, and carry on riding.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Because that's one of the things like people think that because I guess it just sounds a little bit wishy washy being compassionate towards yourself that people think that oh if I'm if I'm easy on myself, my standard will drop and all this stuff. But as you say, it's actually associated with maybe it's reductions in anxiety, depression, self criticism, feel of failure, it's mastery of goals. It's a lot of really good stuff that we want when it comes to actually changing changing our behaviors.
0: Yeah. Yeah.
1: Yeah,
0: I, I th- just be realistic, accept that it happens to everybody. And it does. Even, the, you know, like Einstein and Newton, they didn't make their massive discoveries overnight without getting anything wrong. If you look at how many different theories they put forward that 100% didn't work and were wrong, Yeah. but the thing was they weren't scared of being wrong because they had the confidence to think, eventually I'll get it right. And that's kind of what weight management's about. It's like, make the mistakes, but just learn from them.
1: Yeah. That's, I love that quote from, I think it was Thomas Edison, that I didn't feel 10,000 times. I just found 10,000 times it didn't work. Yeah. <laughs> and, and that's what weight management's about. You're going to
0: find loads of things that just don't work for you. And if you accept that and learn from it, then you'll find the one or two that do work. And that's really that's the kind of end goal It's find out what does work for you and it will be different and that's the other challenge with obesity it will be different for every single client yeah there is no black and white patent that you could take out that goes this works for everyone because it just doesn't if it was that simple again we'd have solved the obesity epidemic decades ago but it Obesity and weight management is an individual thing.
1: Yeah.
0: And what works for one doesn't for another. Yeah. I mean, I, I've seen this with athletes. I worked with um a, some twins. They were both triathletes. It wasn't Brownlee Brothers, by the way. But nonetheless, they were kind of good, county standard triathletes. Yeah. But what was bizarre about it was the nutritional things that worked for one of them didn't work for the other yeah and they're genetically identical twins and you just think, <laughs> why is that that is really weird you know because physiologically they are pretty much as close to being identical as you're gonna get
1: yeah.
0: and yet what worked for one didn't work for the other. and so even in that scenario it's like find out what works for the individual, yeah,
1: I think that's a good place I guess to finish because you know i I' going to do lectures or talks and gyms and stuff and I'll give me introduction about having PhD and all this here and working with athletes. And then next, very next thing I say is that I'm not the expert, so I can't give you something that works for your life because there could be 50 or hundred people here and you're the expert of your own life. So if you work with me, I'm not giving you that magic pill. I'm finding out through trial and error, what works with you. Yeah. You no, know, but sometimes they're expecting, well, just tell me what to do you know, and that's just not the way it is. And sometimes, you know, um, but I, I like finishing off with just two sort of closing questions, Gary. Um, over the course of your career, what client has taught you sort of the biggest lesson or a change the way that you work as a nutritionist? I think the biggest lesson I look when I came out from my undergrad,
0: I thought, oh, I've got all the answers. I write diet plans for people. Away we go. Yeah. And what I found was, generally, they didn't work. Mm-hmm. And 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 what I tended to find was, my clients actually had some of the best ideas, and the ideas they came up with were the ones that tended to to work. Yeah. And so my job was more nudge them a bit so as they find those ideas.
1: <laughs> yeah, it's it's um, it, it's all a learning process, isn't it? That we that we do, and just the last one. We've obviously touched on a lot of different points, but what's one question that you thought I would have asked or wished I would have asked and how would you have answered it? Oh my God.
0: <laughs> <laughs> oh well. that's a difficult that's a
1: difficult question in itself. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> um
0: what one element would I include in any education program for a coach, trainer, dietitian, doctor, medic, whatever it might be, what is the one that to me would be a very pertinent question. And the answer would always be behavior change and, and understanding the psychology and how complex behavior change is and teach them some real basic skills around behavior change, because that will be one of the most powerful tools they've got over and above all the knowledge we could impart to anyone. Because if you look at any type of lifestyle change, I always say there's three pillars to it and there's nutrition, there's exercise stroke activity. And the third one is behavior change, but without the behavior change, the other two never change.
1: Yeah.
0: So that should be an intrinsic part of any program, whether we're looking at personal trainers, whether we're looking at degrees, there needs to be a stronger element of that in all those programs.
1: Yeah, I, I totally agree. And, you know, within a lot of degree programs, especially medical degrees, they might only get four hours of nutrition over a seven-year degree and trying to get the that buy-in of, well, behavior change should be the forefront of that. You yeah. Know, think we're making a lot of progress and a lot of people are starting to to look into behavior change and how we speak to clients and communicate with clients but I would totally agree that we need to see more of it out there in sort of just our education that we're given
0: if I always look at it if you can't help somebody make a behavior change then there's no point in giving them any other information yeah because they're not going to action it yeah so information is only valuable. If people are going to apply it.
1: Yeah. Definitely. Gary, thanks very much for your time. I really appreciate the the chat. I enjoyed the chat. No, it was good. Um, Thanks very much. And hopefully people will get some value from this one. Yeah, hopefully. (laughs) Thanks for listening to the Complete Performance Podcast with your host, Dr. Josh Williamson. I hope you enjoyed the conversation with Dr. Gary Mendoza and can take away some value to help improve your daily performance. If you enjoyed this episode and you'd like to support the podcast further, please share it with others, post about it on social media, or leave a rating and review. To catch all the latest from me, you can follow me on Instagram at Dr. Josh Williamson, as well as checking out all the links and resources in the show notes.